The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, we have been reading the Bible in six months in a series that we're calling Binge the Bible. And we're going to pause for this morning because I feel like the Lord asked me to speak to us uh, on the Palm Sunday text. I do want to confess to you, I'm a day and a half behind in my Bible reading. I just want to say that out there. It's true. It's true. I know some of you are like, I am 94 days behind. <laughs> fine. As long as you're hungry and trying, that's what matters. Um, but I, we, we had a bunch of chores to do yesterday and Friday I was off. And so I started reading through Job and I just was like, I will get back to it. And then I did not. But that has nothing to do with why we're not having a sermon from the reading. That has nothing to do with it. I just want to make sure that you know that, but just be upfront with you. I will catch up this afternoon. Um, but I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 12, if you would. John chapter 12. This is Palm Sunday, and this is the beginning of Holy Week. Um, if, if you are not reading the Bible in six months, or if you have extra time and would like more work, I strongly recommend grabbing a Holy Week devotional uh, from the YouVersion app. I'm doing one also, and they're just awesome to be able to follow along the life of Jesus through the days leading up to his betrayal, crucifixion, ultimately his resurrection. Um, those are, it's a great time for us to slow down as Jesus followers and consider what's at the center of our faith, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Um, but today's Palm Sunday. This is when Jesus, which is recorded for us in all four gospels, made his triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem, where he publicly not only demonstrated his identity as Israel's Messiah, which he had done through the signs that had happened in the previous years during his ministry, but now he is essentially um, inaugurating his messianic kingship by mounting a donkey and riding into Jerusalem, the city, during the Passover celebration. And so all four gospels record this, and I want to read to you from John's account and I'm, I want to um, spend a little bit of time in John 12 to see the reaction of the crowds to Jesus' arrival. And then I want to take you to John 19, which is right before the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want to show you the crowd's reaction to Jesus when he's been flogged, beaten, crowned with thorns, and had a purple robe draped over his bloodied body. And I want to show you the difference between the same crowd, same people, many of them, and their response. And I want to ask you to consider where you find yourself in the crowd. We're going to ask the question, what would make these people have such a different response to Jesus in only five short days? And so let's take a little bit of time, because I'm mostly going to read through scriptures this morning. It's going to be a little bit of preaching and a lot of reading. And so you can follow on the screen, but I just want to pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is alive attended by your spirit, has been preserved, God, for our benefit, and you are going to speak to us right now, anyone who has ears to hear. Lord, I just pray especially for those who are here who are distracted by a great need, the kind of need that keeps you up at night, that's the first thing that you think about when your eyes awaken, that tempers your disposition and influences your decisions. God, I just believe there's some people here in this service who are at a point of great need. And Lord, we just want to hear your voice in the midst of the chaos or in the midst of the louder voices, the contentious voices. We just want to have your help to just silence all of those voices, even especially if it's in someone's body, if someone's here in great pain. God, I just pray that we would be able to hear you 
And so we're giving you our attention and we're asking that you would speak. God, I can read and I can preach, only you can speak. Have your way in this place. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. So John chapter 12, starting in verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Previous chapter, Jesus does the greatest of all of his signs, the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Four days in the grave, Jesus arrives, Lazarus come for us, and Lazarus comes out, and whoa, no one's ever done that. And everyone's attention is grabbed. So Jesus is at Lazarus's house. Verse two, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, shocker, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And I read this section before Jesus mounts the donkey because I wanna show you the intentionality and the forethought of what is in Jesus' heart and mind at dinner. Disciples know nothing. Jesus is mindful that only days from now, he is going to be killed and buried. And he's thinking of that moment and this moment. He's aware that he will not always be with his disciples. Verse nine. When the large crowd, and here's our first crowd. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So Jesus did this miracle on purpose at this specific time, at this specific place, because he knew this would draw a crowd and this is what he was interested in. He wanted a crowd to be present. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. How troubling when people start responding to the truth. And so those who are holding positions of power are threatened by this. And so they decide they're gonna destroy Lazarus because obviously at the time there's no digital cameras, there's no TikTok, there's no Instagram. And so they're gonna kill Lazarus, the story fades and dies. Isn't it funny that even in our culture today, those who are in positions of power wanna bury the truth? Isn't it interesting how they kind of use the same methods today. No, that did not happen. You don't know what you're talking about. They'll bury it through censorship or by clouding it with every angle of mis and disinformation to keep you from knowing the top from the bottom. Isn't that true? Still doing the same thing. But here's what I love about the way God created us. All of us recognize the truth when we hear it. All of us recognize the truth when we see it. And Jesus is all about bringing God's reality into this world and nothing's gonna stop them. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9. And when Jesus got on that donkey, and when those crowds got out their palm branches, they were recognizing that he is the king, and he was indeed proclaiming through this activity that he was Israel's king. Verse 16 tells us, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness about him. Look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So Jesus is convincing everyone and everyone is coming to Jesus. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So their best efforts to stop Jesus are having no positive results. And Jesus is drawing bigger crowds than ever. And people are even welcoming him as king. And I mention these things to you because Jesus here is showing his intention to reveal himself as the rightful king of Israel, and he is doing so in a way that will most certainly provoke both the Jewish leaders who despise him and the Roman authorities to whom he is a threat by proclaiming himself as king. And so Jesus is very intentionally going into Jerusalem in a series of events that he knows will culminate into his betrayal and his execution because that is why he has come. So from this point forward, the opposition continues. But in John's narrative, um, this is a hinge point. John 12 kind of finishes the ministry of Jesus. And then John 13, we go into the Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with his disciples. I was very eager to spend this Passover meal with you. And chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 have some of the most beautiful and profound scriptures where Jesus is talking to his disciples, aware of his impending demise and the things that he says there, some of the most meaningful, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Whoever abides in me is he who bears much fruit. Um, This is where uh, Jesus talks about not being afraid and not being left alone. All of these words of comfort. And then Jesus leaves this Passover meal with his disciples and they go out to pray. And John records for us the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where Jesus prays for us, you and me in this room today. He says there are, he's praying for his disciples who he calls the, the sheep of his flock. But he says, I have other sheep who are not of this flock. And he's dying for the sins of many, including us present. And he's thinking about us. And he prays that we would have such union with him and with the father because of that relationship with Jesus, that we would be so filled and so full and so restored that we would have supernatural spirit empowered love for one another and even for enemy. And that we would be such a cohesive force in the earth that we would be unstoppable and recognizable as followers of Jesus because of our love. That's what he prayed for. That's what he wanted more than anything else. And then we get to John chapter 18. And this is where we go back to the narrative of Jesus being betrayed by Judas being arraigned before a kangaroo court in the middle of the night of the religious leaders who are not, this is in no way fair. This is a mock trial where they have already condemned him and they are seeking now to strong arm 
the Roman authorities, in this instance, Pontius Pilate, in order to get Pilate to execute Jesus because they cannot. And so the crowds here are being manipulated. The crowds are being drawn by Jesus and he uses them to make himself known. And then the crowds are going to then be used by the religious leaders to try to get Rome to do something for them that they want when typically it goes the other way around. Rome's oppressing the Jews and the Jews are trying to just make do. But now the Jewish leaders need Rome to crush Jesus. And so they start to leverage against Pontius Pilate. And so when we get to John chapter 19, Jesus has been turned over to Pilate. Pilate just has him beat just because he's turned over to him. Let's just start with beating him and then we'll talk. John 19 verse one. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So let's give him a nice public humiliation and let him go. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Nothing impressive about this guy. He is, not, he is not the revolutionary that I should be afraid of. He's just some dude. And look at him now. Thinking that would be enough, he was wrong. Verse six, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And now Pilate's having that eerie feeling that many of you have had. Can we not get God involved in this? When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Which is, this is him trying to make this somebody else's problem. Like what? You're not from my district, right? Whose district? Where where were you born? Let's talk about your location. How can I give this problem to somebody else? You guys, you've worked with someone like that before, right? Let's, Let's make this somebody else's problem. But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? By the way, this is how authoritarians do it. They're insecure on the inside, terrified, and then they speak angry and loud. Did you guys familiar with this? It's important that you recognize this. And Jesus is just sitting there quiet. Verse 11, Jesus speaks. He answered him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Here again, Jesus is showing his intention and his purposeful provocation to both the religious leaders, and also the oppressive leaders of Rome. Verse 12 tells us that from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And this is all publicly happening with shouts and jeers in the hearing of many. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, now before he had said, behold the man, no threat. And now he says, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar, which was true in every sense of the word, ironically. Verse 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is where we'll pick up on Good Friday. But I wanna read these two passages in juxtaposition, and I wanna ask you to think about why would the same group of people on Monday be shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of the Jews. And now here on Friday, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. How, how does that happen exactly? Has it ever crossed your mind? Now, obviously we know that crowds are pretty easily persuadable. And so as long as there's enough forces of influence, people can pretty easily be swayed. YouTube's kind of proven that. But I think the specific answer to this question, how could they have this major shift, comes when you ask the question, what is it they think they needed? Because when the Israelites welcomed Jesus as king on the triumphal entry, they saw him as the king of the Jews, the messianic hope, the expectation of an earthly king who would overthrow their oppressors like had happened before in Israel's history and establish uh, God's promised Davidic forever king throne in Jerusalem over Israel and that Israel would be the capital of the world and this kingdom would then spread over the entire globe. They didn't have a proper eschatology because God hadn't told them. And that was their greatest sense of need. And when that need wasn't fulfilled and Jesus was paraded out by Pontius Pilate, having been flogged and beaten with a mock crown and robe and shown to be powerless and unwilling to stand up against Rome, even being silent before his accusers, the Israelites realized quickly that Jesus was like every other false revolutionary who had ever stood up only to find themselves squished and was no longer meaningful or useful to meet their greatest need. And so they were quickly and easily persuaded by the religious leaders to go on with their call for crucifixion. And so when Jesus didn't do for them what they hoped or what they thought he should, they went back to be persuaded by those they had followed before he had arrived. And I mention that because I wanna ask you to consider as you're sitting here this morning, what is it that you need from God? I used to do um, some counseling. I stopped because um, I'm not very good at it. Uh, I love people and I love to help people. And so I'm eager to sit down with anybody and help them work through a situation and help to bring God's word to bear. Um, and one of the questions that I would use when I would be walking with someone and encountering a situation to try to determine what it is that was their greatest sense of what they really needed is I would ask them the question, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you change in this situation? And I thought that was just so brilliant. Uh, you know, and then um, at one point um, last year or so, Tiffany and I were like at a crossroads and trying to figure some stuff out and she used it on me. She goes, she goes, if you could wave a magic, I was like, you're using my trick, you know? And what I found was really hard um, is that, you know, we're not always smart enough to even know what it is that we need. I'm like, I don't know. I don't have a magic wand and I'm afraid of what I would do if I had one, honestly. I don't really even know 
what it is that I need. And so for some of us, we can have this like kind of like convoluted mess of, I don't even know what my problem is. And yet most of us live kind of very aware of what it is we think we need and identifying the source of our problem. And a lot of times we keep coming to God to solve that thing. And here's the thing. Um, when you don't agree with God about what your greatest need is and you don't let him start with meeting the need he says is the greatest, you'll find yourself living a whole entire life where you're after God to meet some need. And when he doesn't, you feel like maybe he's not for you. He's not there. He's not real. Or maybe he's punishing you or maybe you deserve this thing. And so I really felt strongly the Lord wanted to bring into alignment his view of your greatest need and your view of your greatest need. You see, God's eager to meet all of your needs right? His love for us is so great that, and he hasn't split, what Roman 8 says, he who did not spare his own son for, but, but gladly gave him up for us all. How will he not along with him graciously give us all things? Do you see God is not stingy? Do you see God's not holding out on you? But if you come to God trying to negotiate your set of needs over here, you may find yourself frustrated and you may find God silent. Have you guys ever experienced this? And rather, God rather quickly becomes kind of disappointing. You're not very good at this God stuff. I would have fixed this a long time ago, right? But when you start by acknowledging what your real need is and agreeing with God, this is when you can allow God to meet your greatest need. Think about it in monetary terms real quick. Anybody in this room got a $100 problem? You're probably 12 most of our problems are much bigger than that, aren't they? Anybody? No? No $100 problems? Anybody got some $1,000 problems? You got some $10,000 problems. How about a couple hundred thousand dollar problems? <laughs> Wave a magic wand and boom, right? Some of you are like, I got seven digit problems, man. I got real problems. I got real problems. I don't know. Start thinking about the scale of your issues. Listen, and I know there's lots of problems that, aren't, that money could never solve. Some of you could have heart problems, cancer problems, divorce problems, relationship problems, lost grandchildren problems. There's problems that money can't fix, right? But we live sometimes plagued by our awareness of our problems. Listen, Jesus, his intentionality and his provocation at the triumphal entry is evidence that he knows your greatest problem. And your greatest problem is that apart from him and his life-giving spirit, you are dead. That's your problem. Your problem is not debt, sickness, strife, that your dreams didn't come true, that your business hasn't taken off. Your problem is that apart from faith in Jesus, the you you were meant to be cannot be because you is dead. Now, most of you are awake, so do me a favor. Put two fingers on your wrist and see if you can feel your pulse. Some of you are like, I don't play stupid pastor tricks. Not doing it. Just not doing it. If you were to play my little game, you would feel that your heart is beating and there's blood moving through your extremities. And this is a sign that you are alive and you look alive. The problem is you can't see spiritual death. You can't see whether someone's dead. I mean, God can see. I can't see. Some of you could be spiritually dead right now. I can't tell. I'm looking. There's not like little floating halos over the spiritually alive people. I mean, if I watch your life long enough, I might be able to determine probably dead, you know? <laughs> but in this room, I can't tell. But until you ask the question, what is it that I perceive is my greatest need? 
And you're not asking you that, you're asking God that. His answer is right here. When Jesus showed up, he didn't show up to oppose Rome. He didn't show up to establish a kingdom in Israel. He didn't show up to make sure there was a better economy for the Israelites. He didn't show up to make sure everybody's fields were fruitful. He showed up because humanity was dead. And the only way they could be made alive was through a miracle of God's spirit. And that could only happen when an atonement for sins had been made. And so Jesus came not to conquer an earthly kingdom. He came to conquer a spiritual enemy and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what he was doing on purpose. He was provoking Rome and he was provoking the religious leaders and he was leading all of these events to his own execution so that he could die for you and be raised on the third day so that anyone who believed in him could have life in his name. That's the good news. And that's your greatest need. Now, listen, once you get that greatest need met, here's the most amazing thing. You get to start walking with God and he becomes a father to you. And he's a good father. He's a good father that takes real good care of his children. Somebody say amen. But if you don't want him to be your father, you just want him to do the things for you you want him to do. He's nothing but a heavenly butler, is he not? I'm, I'm just here to tell you, God's not interested in that job. So you wonder, where's God? He doesn't answer my prayers. He doesn't do the things that I need him. I'm in this situation. I'm all alone. No, you're probably just dead. And he wants you to be alive first. He wants you to give your whole self to him willingly to go, I'm all in. I'm surrendering all to you so that you can make me alive. And now that I'm alive, I'm yours. And now that I'm yours, you're in charge and you can take care of me. And that changes everything. I'm just saying, if you're disappointed in God, it's probably a you problem. And so in just a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to fix that. And to do that, I want to just tell you about three passages in Acts. I was going to read them. I always think this doesn't take as long. We're following these crowds, and um, Acts is the book that comes after John in order of the books of the Bible, but it's actually the sequel to Luke's gospel, Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And Acts tells a story of how God continued to move through the spirit-empowered disciples, and the good news about Jesus started making people alive all over the place. It's a super cool book. We're going to read it shortly. Stay with us. But there's these three moments when a little sermon is given in different settings, and then there's a response And we see this phrase, when they heard this, they responded in this particular way. And the first one is in Acts chapter two. This is when Jesus said to stay in Jerusalem, but you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then at the Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the Passover, 40 days after Jesus had ascended, the disciples are together and they're praying and they're hiding and they're in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit comes in like the sound of a mighty rushing wind and tongues are fire like tongues comes down from heaven and settles on them and they begin to speak in foreign languages and people from all over the known world who are in Jerusalem are hearing them proclaiming the mighty acts of God in their own languages and to some people it sounds like gibberish and so people are talking among themselves going, what is going on here? Who are these weirdos? They must be drunk. And Peter stands up and he gives this powerful sermon in verses 14 to 41. He starts by saying, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk. It is only 9 a.m. It's a great way to start a sermon. (laughs) 
And then he says, this is a fulfillment of what God prophesied through Joel, that he was gonna pour out his spirit on all flesh. But the culmination of that passage of scripture was not just that they would see visions and dream dreams and there would be no limits on who would receive God's miraculous supernatural salvation and infilling, but that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. And then he told them that this Jesus was God's Messiah and that they killed him. And then in verse 36, it says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And the answer was simple. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And guess what? If you're listening, God's calling you too. You don't have to wonder. Is this for me? Yep. (laughs) The question is, how will you respond? Will you agree with God or not? Because the same sermon was preached in Acts chapter five. After Peter and John had been put in jail and in the middle of the night, God decided to let them out of jail and they left jail and they went and preached in the temple And the religious leaders went to get them out of jail and they weren't there. Jailbreak. And they went and got them, but there's a great crowd. And so they, hey, could you guys come with us, please? And I thought we beat you yesterday and told you never to talk about Jesus. This is the conversation. Peter and the apostles answered in verse 29. Sorry, we must obey God rather than man. And don't we need some people in this generation who are willing to stand up and say, sorry, I'm going with God on this one. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to be afraid of you. Beat me, kill me, put me in prison. I'm going with God. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's a good word right there, huh? You know how they responded? When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. There's still some of that going on too, by the way. You say these words, you claim that anything is true and that someone else is wrong, you will get some heat, some rage. So I don't think you're in this room. You're probably online if you feel this way. Probably lurking and not in the room. But if you're feeling rage and you wanna kill me, just talk to security, they're right here in the back. The worst one of these responses, and I'll end right here. In fact, the worship team's gonna come up, uh, is Acts chapter 17. This is when the apostle Paul, who'd been called away from his life as a Pharisee and a religious leader, a persecutor of the church and a killer of Christians, was sent to the Areopagus in Athens. And these are the people who didn't have the law. They didn't know any of the Jewish story. They had no Jewish heritage. They're just Gentiles, just Greeks in Athens doing Greek things for thousands of years. And so Paul shows up and he begins to preach to them and he quotes Epimenides and Aratus and very familiar people that they knew. And he claims to reveal who the God who made the world and everything in it is. And then he says, uh, because we're God's offsprings, we ought not to think that a divine being is gold or silver or stone. They're all pagans and worshiped idols. 
an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Same message. And this is the saddest one for me in verse 32. And when they heard this about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, oh, boo, boo, thumbs down. I don't like this sermon. But others said, we will hear you again on this. They're like, I'll watch season two. (laughs) And I think this is probably the scariest response. Because if you're here today and you're not alive and you don't know what it means to be filled with God's Holy Spirit and to know that your sins are forgiven and to know that you are one with God in Christ, that you are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, established, adopted, empowered, and sent. And your life doesn't look like one of moving from grace to grace and glory to glory. And you are praying small prayers and frustrated by God. And when you hear this good news of who Jesus says he is and what your greatest need is and what he has done to meet it and your response is, I'll come back next week for more. That is probably the most dangerous place to land. And I want to plead with you that how you walk out of this room today depends on what you think your greatest need is and what you're asking God to do to meet it. And I want to plead with you to agree with God that your greatest need is that apart from his life-giving spirit, you are dead inside. And there is nothing that will fix that but Jesus. No amount of money, no amount of success, no perfect relationships. There is not enough antidepressant meds or plastic surgery that will make you feel any better. In fact, some of your most heartfelt prayers are way too small. You see, God wants to give you the world and he wants to dwell with you forever. And he wants to do so many things for you, but not until you're his. And so first, you need to be alive. And when this good news reaches your heart and the cut starts to happen, you gotta let the cut come. You gotta, you gotta go, oh no, this is bad. Yeah, it's bad. I'm desperate, what do I do? Good answer. But the response is simple. Just turn towards God. He's there. He's pleading with you. He's after you. Turn in his direction. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And be baptized. Join your life to him inextricably. Become one with him in his death so that you can walk to newness of life and be a part of his eternal plan. This is what God is after. And if you haven't recognized and received that, that is what you are missing. It's what you think you need that shapes who you think Jesus is and how you respond to him. And this Palm Sunday, I want you to lay out the red carpet on the inside of your heart to welcome the King of Kings, acknowledging that he has made a way for you where there was no way and he has died in your place. And so if that's you, I'm gonna give you a chance to repent. And I'm gonna do it real simply by giving you a chance in this service to just raise your hand and say, yep, I'm gonna agree that my problem is what God says my problem is and that Jesus is the solution to that problem and the answer. And I'm gonna give my life to him. Today, I'm making that decision. Not coming back next week, not gonna think about it. 
I'm not gonna be filled with rage. I'm gonna agree with God and receive what he wants to give me. And I, I know there's some of you who are feeling that tug. And so I'm gonna give you a chance to raise your hand and I'm gonna lead you in a prayer that we're all gonna pray together. And so if that's you and you want to agree with God and receive his gift, then I want you to raise your hand with me on three. One, two, three. Let me see you. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Good. Excellent. Would you put your hands down and close your eyes and would you pray this prayer with me? And everybody, would you pray this together? I think all of us have prayed some version of this, but for the benefit of those turning to Christ today. Father in heaven, I know I am lost apart from you. Let's try that again. You guys aren't really playing along. Nice and loud. Father in heaven, thank you. I know that I am lost apart from you. I have sinned against you. I have hurt other people and myself. I am turning to you now and I ask for your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins and you rose from the dead. I turn from my ways without you and I invite you to come into my heart and to lead me in the way of life. I trust you and I commit to follow you as my Lord and Savior. If you just pray that prayer in sincerity of heart, the good news is that God has saved you and your name is engraved on the palm of his hands. And you are now not a part of a persuadable crowd to go one way or another, but you are a part of a great multitude that Revelation 7 says no one can number from every nation and tribe and people and languages. And you will stand before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes. And guess what? With palm branches in your hands, crying in eternity, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And the only appropriate way to end is to sing a song of praise. And so let's get on our feet. Amen.